0: Amen. Anyway, thank you, Samuel, uh, for that this morning. Uh, morning, folks. How are we? Wonderful. Brilliant. It's not going to get any better, trust me. Uh, no, this morning, before we uh, get into the tax this morning, I just want to say a couple of things, really. This morning, there's been quite a bit of, uh, let's just say, scrambling. Uh, and quite a few people have been under pressure. Uh, in the first service we had a few technical difficulties and the guys down the back were under pressure and that was stressful for them and then just there's been a lot of there's been a lot of scrambling this morning. But it made me aware of something I think and that is that I think we're in a time where we are we feel as if we're back to church but we're not back to church. And so whilst we gather here on a Sunday uh, there are things not happening still. Like for example kids ministry, or hospitality. But there are still a lot of things happening on Sunday mornings. There's the worship guys have to prepare and, and, and serve us. The, the tech guys, the sound guys, the visual guys, they all have to prepare and serve us. The welcome team have to be here and serve us. The guys who are doing the, the, the kids ministry on, on, on the videos and in the live, they have to prepare and serve us. And so there's a lot of things going on. And what I want to say to you is this. Please, if you get a chance today, encourage any of those guys who are involved in those ministries. Encourage any of those guys, if you get a chance, who are involved in those ministries. Because there is a lot of work going on. But can I also say this? Please, if you are a member, and especially if you're a member of Cornerstone Church, please... Speak to to John Nixon, speak to some of the ministry leaders to see how you can get involved in those ministries. Things are happening. We need people to serve. It's very simple. We need people to serve. And if you're you're a member in Cornerstone Church, say this as gently as I can, it is in the church covenant that you serve. That is a non-negotiable. It's there. And so if you signed up to be a member of Cornerstone Church, you signed up to serve. And so if you're not, please see John Nixon, please see a ministry leader, and they will get you plugged in. This takes a lot of hands doing different things, and this morning just made me aware of that again, and made me thankful for the people who are involved in those things, thankful for those guys who turn up faithfully every single week and do their thing without a lot of the time, let's just be real, a lot of the time without a lot of recognition and a lot of the time they just take grief. And so I'm thankful for them. And so please today, if you get a chance to encourage them, encourage them. And if you're a member, get on board. If we're, if, listen, if we're with Boris, Boris is saying the 21st of June, I'm on board with Boris. I am on that Boris bus uh, that we can get back in no social distancing, no nothing, I don't know what Michelle and Arlene's going to do, if Arlene's still around by that stage, I'm not sure, I don't know, uh, but sent 21st, let's pray to that end, pray to that end, that we're no more social distancing, we can go back to what we're doing in full, and let's, let's get going again, but please consider those things that I've said to you this morning, encourage those who do serve, and if you're a member, please get on board and serve in some way that you can, or feel led to do that, please do that, Right, this morning, John 4. John 4. George Muller, famous evangelist, said this, Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. Faith begins where man's power ends. And certainly in the context of this passage today, in John 4, that's what we see. What we're looking at today is outside the realms of human capability, outside the realm of human possibility, the healing of this official's son. Now, most of us in here, and that's a a guess, I'm hazarding a guess at that, most of us in this room today come from quite traditional, if we've come from a church background at all, most of us come from quite traditional church backgrounds, where the supernatural was either not talked about, it certainly mightn't have been witnessed that much, but to a large degree it went unknown. The supernatural went unknown. But here is the reality of Scripture. The God that we say that we love and we serve is a supernatural god. is a supernatural god. By what's the definition of supernatural? Well, I'm glad you asked. This is it. Definition supernatural is this: a manifestation or event attributed to some force beyond scientific understanding or the laws of nature. And again, the reality is if we read Scripture, we read about the God that we love and serve, He is not bound by science or scientific understanding or by the laws of nature. Why? Because He is the one that created them, and He is the one that can move outside of them if He desires to do so. He is the one that created them, and He's the one that can move outside them if He desires to do so. And sometimes, here's what we like to do as human beings. We like to make God so small so that we can try to understand him. We try to make God so small so that we can try to understand him. And the reality is, we can't. If you think you've got a grasp on God, you are mistaken our brains, our understanding, are just not capable of understanding fully who God is. I've read this week, and I've come to love it more and more, just how the Westminster Confession of Faith describes God. And this is a human understanding of God, but it is absolutely beautiful in the way that it describes God. Listen to this. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things together according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, and withal most just and terrible in His judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty." And so, that is just that is, from a human perspective, a beautiful picture of who God is. Just think about some of those statements. Incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute. And that's from a human perspective. And so with that being said, when we come to passages like today, when we, when, and what we see is sometimes it's just hard to fathom who God is. It's hard to fathom when He moves. It's hard to fathom how He moves. It's hard to fathom, you know, what moves Him to move. But what we see today is this official Son being healed. And one of the most interesting things about Jesus' miracles, and in particular healings, and I remember Derek McKelvey saying this when we were on the prayer ministry course, is this, every single one of Jesus' healings are almost different. They're almost no two the same. In this instance, Jesus isn't even present with the boy. He's not even there. And he heals him. So let's just look through this passage today, see what we see, and see what God is saying to us. The first thing we can see from the passage today is this that faith is very much evident in the man, faith is evident in the official. This man's son is on the brink of death. He's dying. He lives in Capernaum, and that's about 20 miles or so away from where we are in Canaan of Galilee. And that, again, let's put ourselves back in the context, not in today, because 20 miles for us doesn't seem like much, but 20 miles back in the day when you're walking that is a significant difference. It's, it's significant miles. Some of you are doing 10K a day in May. You'll know what that feels like over the last first week. Uh, you'll, you'll realize it's a significant mileage. Or kilometers, as the case may be, because it's K, right? Uh, this is a significant step for this man, steps for this man to take. He hears that Jesus is in Cana of Galilee, and he makes haste to get there. He knows he needs to be where Jesus is. He knows he needs to be where Jesus is. And what's really interesting about this passage is is that the circumstances in this man's life have radically changed his priorities. He is a government official. That means a few things. That means that he is power. That means that he is prestige. That means that he is wealth. That means that he is probably educated. That means certain things. But but the, the circumstances of his life have meant that he is left all those things behind and went to seek Jesus because he knows that Jesus is the only one that can heal his son, his money, his wealth, his position, his power, his prestige. None of that will do it. None of that will do it. And so he knows he needs to leave that and he needs to be with Jesus. Extremes will do that to you. extremes will do that to you. Extremes in life will make you realize, maybe some of you have been there, extremes in life will make you realize that none of those things matter. I'm just looking at Ruth. just <laughs> caught me eye. When Ruth was in the royal, no amount of money, no amount of power, no amount of prestige was going to make a difference. The only thing that was going to make a difference was Jesus. The only thing that was going to make a difference was Jesus. This official knows that the, this situation is urgent. His son is dying. This man was in the habit of giving out the orders. He's an official. He, as I say, he would have power. He would have prestige. He was in the habit of being the person who who got things sorted. And what this situation has reduced him to is this, a beggar. A beggar. He is coming to Jesus as a beggar. And folks, that's exactly what prayer is. That's exactly what prayer is. Prayer should reduce us all to beggars. Coming to Jesus with open hands, with open hearts, seeking Him for things that only He can do. He comes and He pleads at the feet of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but when when you read this passage, if you're not just a little bit astounded or a little bit shocked by Jesus' response, you should be. Look at it. Look at it there. Verse 47, when, when this man heard that Jesus had come to Judea and get, up to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. What did Jesus say? Jesus says, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Why does he say that? Why does he not just say in this at the start? go, your son is going to live. Why does he say, listen, unless I perform for you like some sort of performing monkey, you're not going to believe. Why does he say that? Because he wants the people to know, there's others listening to this, and he wants the others to know that he's not just there for their entertainment. He's there as their Savior. He's there as their Savior. He's not just there for their entertainment. They wanted to see signs and wonders. And it's no wonder that they received Him well back back in Cana of Galilee, because we remember, obviously, that's where He performed the first sign, the turning the water into wine. And so they received Him gladly back there, and they thought they were going to get more of the same. And so Jesus needs to make sure that this man's request is from a, from a heart of faith in Him, not just to see some sort of entertainment. where was he, were they trusting Jesus? And so, there's a pause put on the response. The man comes, makes a request, and then there's a pause put on. Jesus says, no, hold on. And you understand this. You understand this. If you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, you will understand this. Sometimes the answers to prayers don't come as quickly as we would like them to. Sometimes before he answers, he just says, hold on, hold on. I recently, again, uh, had my, have my ongoing yearly annual battle with Sky. Uh, if any of you have Sky, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, you, they, they, they hike the price, and then you ring them, and you inevitably, inevitably, every single time, if you can go through the war of attrition that they put you on, inevitably, they will break, and they will give you whatever you get, you're getting at half price, right? It's just fact, just, it's going to happen, right? So, but in the war of attrition, no doubt, along that journey somewhere, you will be put on hold. Who likes that? Any freaks? No? No? No one likes that. No one likes to be put on hold, especially with the weird music that they play. I think it's part of the war of attrition, to be honest. I think it's they try to wear you down. I haven't done the research, but I think there could be something in the music that, like, there's a subliminal message in there, or there's, like, just the tone or whatever it is They try to wear you down. But if you can stick it out they will come to your way of thinking. They were always going to get there. They were always going to get there. But no one likes to be put on hold. No one likes those 15, 20 minutes where you're sitting there with the phone on loudspeaker, getting on with whatever you're getting on with. Because you know they're going to come back and you know they're going to give it to you for half price. But you have to go through it. I think it's something to do with they have to tell their manager that they did these things. But anyway. But no one likes hold. No one likes it. And we don't like it when God doesn't answer our prayers as quickly as we would like him to. But here's the thing. In the pause, and in the being put on hold, God is always doing something. Always doing something. Whether he's testing us, whether he is... making us learn something whether he is He's doing something. And maybe you're there now. Maybe there's something in your life where you're praying and praying and praying, and you, you're not getting an answer, or you're not getting the answer you want. God is doing something. God is doing something. Let's flip that. maybe you're not waiting because maybe you're not praying what did we talk about at the start when george miller talked about that that faith operates outside the realms of human possibility what if we're not praying for things that don't require just us what if we're not praying for supernatural intervention what if we're not praying for things that only god can do are we praying those types of prayers maybe we're not, but I hope we are. And the one prayer that we all, I guarantee you every single one of us in this room, if we're following Jesus, is praying, I hope we are, is that other people will come to know Jesus. And what will that take? That will take a supernatural response from God. So, if you're in there, if you're waiting, if you're praying fervently for something and you're on hold, please be encouraged that God is doing something. God is doing something. There's no doubt about it. But let's have a wee look at ourselves as well and ask the question, are we praying prayers that require God to do something? Or are we relying on our own strength, on our own capabilities, on our own whatever? So what we see first of all here is this, there is faith evident in the man. There's no doubt about that. But the second thing we see is that faith, he is, he's persistent. He keeps going. He's not put off by the hold. He keeps asking. This royal official here, he won't be put off even though that he knows that God, God, Jesus, is putting him on hold. He will not be put off. There's a, there's a verse in Matthew 12, I think it's Matthew 11 verse 12, and and Jesus alludes to this when He says that the days are coming and have now come that when violent men will take the kingdom by force. And what He means by that is that there's this aggression with persistence. Persisting and, and, and going for it and keep on going for it and keep on pushing. Stickability in prayer. And there's perseverance in this faith of this man. The other story that comes to mind when, when you think of perseverance and, and, and healing in particular is in Mark chapter 2, the healing of the paralytic. Let me read that to you. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at the home, at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And when he was preaching, and, when, and he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let let him down on a bed on which the paralytic lay. That's perseverance. Do you imagine this morning? You hear a couple of scrapes in the roof, and all of a sudden, there's an opening appears, and someone is led down through the roof. Now, at that point, John Nixon's cracking up because he knows there's going to be paperwork. But apart from that, it would freak us out a little. But that was the perseverance of these men to get their friend to Jesus. To get their friend to Jesus. They weren't going to be put off by crowds. They weren't going to be put off. Oh, it's awkward. It's not going to work. They weren't put off by, oh, we'll come back another time. No, they were persistence. There's this stickability. There's this grit. There's this aggression in in them getting their friend to Jesus. And there's the same with this man and his son. There's an aggression. There's a, I'm going to keep going here. There's a change in tone in the language. The first appeal is, Jesus, come heal my son because he's close to death. I think he's trying to be polite. The second one goes, come before he dies. There's a change. The circumstances have sharpened his priorities even further. Come before he dies. The official son or the official knows that his son needs Jesus. And whilst the child's immediate need is healing, physical healing, the greater need is always simply to come to Jesus for eternal healing. Now, how many of us, if our child was unwell, would not beg Jesus to heal them. We all would. There's not one parent in here that would not beg Jesus to heal their child. Many of us have. But I think there's something really important for us to consider as parents. If you're a parent, if your children have grown up, it doesn't make any difference. If your children are at whatever stage, if you're not yet parent, and maybe someday this is important for us to consider. What do you want most for your children? What do you want most for your children? Do you want, is, it, is what you want most that they have a good education, the best education possible? Is what you want most for them to progress to the, to the greatest degree of sporting excellence that they can progress to? Is what you want most for them that they have the best career that they can have? Is what you want most for them that they can have the best relationships that they can have? What do you want most for them? Or is it that we want most for them to know and love Jesus? Is that the thing that we want most for our children? This official wanted his child to have Jesus. He knew that Jesus was the only thing that would. He knew Jesus was the only thing that this child needed. Is it wrong that we want our children to be educated? No. Is it wrong that we want them to do well at sport? No. Is it wrong that we want them to have a good career? No. Is it wrong that we want them to have good relationships? No. But if those things are the thing that we want most for our children, then our priorities are out of sync. And how do we test that? How do we test? Let me, let me give you the test. And I feel the test. Can I just say, it? I feel the test. Where do we prioritize our time with our children? That's the test. Do we prioritize telling them, teaching them about Jesus and how to love and follow Jesus? Or do we prioritize anything else on that list? Has the world so conditioned us and even in the church to prioritize those things over teaching our children about Jesus? What do we want most for them? What do we want most? We see here that this man's faith persisted. It was evident, but it persisted. The man says, come down before my child dies. And Jesus replies, your son will live. Your son will live. The Greek says, your son lives. And there's both a promise and power in that statement. Your your son lives. But what we see after that, when Jesus makes that statement, Jesus says, your son lives. What we see after that is some, the words that come after that demonstrate some of the greatest faith, I think, in the, in the New Testament. Let me, let me read to you what comes after that. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. One of the biggest existential questions of life that, that you will ever hear, that we will ever hear, is what is faith? What is faith? Here's your answer. I'm going to give you it today. Taking Jesus at his word. Taking Jesus at his word. That's faith. And that's what this man displays. Taking Jesus at his word. Interesting. Back at the the wedding in Cana, What was Mary's words? Do you remember what Mary said to the servants? Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Take him at his word. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. That is demonstrating faith. Just do what he says. Take him at his word. And I think on reflection this week, as I've been thinking about this, and I've looked back over last week as well, and some of the verses that we didn't cover last week, towards the end of the passage last week, I think this sheds some light on what is a fairly strange statement by Jesus when He says this in verse 44 of last week. He said, a prophet has no honor in his own country. A prophet has no honor in his own country. You see, the people in Jesus' own town didn't take him at his word. They didn't. Why? That's Jesus. Joseph, Mary, carpenter's son. We know him. When he went to Cana, they took him at his word. And these, I just want to be honest with you, these are some of the verses that I struggle with most in Scripture that it's the same. I've, I've told you before, I, I find this difficult because I grew up in a friend. I stand up here Sunday after Sunday and and, and speak the Word of God and and do what I, I think I should be doing. And I struggle with it because I think oh, it's only Irvi. Irby. Irvi's from the town. You know, Edith and Bernie, you know, He's out of them, as Christopher would say. I struggle with that, and I can identify with Jesus in this. I can identify with Him in it. But what does it mean for us? What does it mean to take Jesus at His Word, to believe the promises that He has made, to demonstrate faith like this man did, In what areas are you and I not demonstrating faith at the moment in our life? Because I guarantee you, I guarantee you there are areas in your life that you're not demonstrating faith that this man did in taking Jesus at his word. I guarantee you there are some in here this morning that when Jesus said and, and says that he loves you, you are not taking him at his word. I guarantee you this morning there are some in this room who, when Jesus said that He will not lose one whom the Father has given Him and that He will hold Him for all eternity, I guarantee you there's some of you not taking Him at His Word. I guarantee you that when, when Jesus says that, that He's for us, not against us, that some of you are not taking Him at His Word. Where are we not demonstrating faith in taking Jesus at His Word? Where some of us aren't taking Jesus at His Word when He said that on the cross that it is finished, and that you don't need to work for your salvation anymore. Some of us doubt that, and so we work a little harder. Where are you not demonstrating faith this morning? Where am I not demonstrating faith? This taking Jesus at His Word. I want to encourage you this morning to do that. Just do that. Just look up. The Google is a wonderful thing. Go home this afternoon and turn on the Google. And type into the Google God's promises. Right? Right? And the Google Google will bring you up. It's not anti-Christian. The Google's not anti-Christian. It's not. It will bring you up God's promises. And read them. And read them over yourself. And trust them for yourself. Because they apply to you. Do that. Just do that. And then take them at his word. Take them at his word. The man demonstrates faith in taking Jesus at His word. So, we see faith is evident. We see it persists. We see the man responds in faith with his attitude, and here's the result. And this is where it gets really hard and really difficult. The result is positive this time. The result is positive. The boy lives. The boy is healed. Why do I say this is the hard part and this is difficult? Because that is not the case all the time. It's just not. God can and does heal miraculously. Throughout Jesus' ministry, we see it. We see that He performed miraculous signs, healings, that glorified God and deepened people's faith no doubt about that. The Bible encourages us to pray for healing. The Bible encourages us to pray with the same fervency that the man prays with here. And yet, while we do that, whilst we pray for healing with fervency, I must say this, and this is vital. If you hear nothing else, if you heard nothing else today, listen, this is massively important. We must, when we pray, we must make a distinction. Although God can heal and does heal, we must never presume that He must heal, because sometimes He doesn't. Sometimes He doesn't. Death is a consequence of the fall, and it will Catch up with every single one of us in this room eventually. And usually, illness is the vehicle which is used for it. But we must never presume that God must heal. He can and He does, but we must never presume that He must. And sometimes, in His infinite wisdom, and mercy, and grace, and sovereignty, He doesn't. One day, when Christ returns, there will be no need to pray for healing, because He is going to wipe away every tear from every eye, and there will be no disease, and there will be no mourning and there will be no pain. But until that point, there will be. And in that, we must stand on two things. God is good, and God is sovereign. And that's hard. I am not going to stand in front of you and say that that is easy, because it is not. Because I know some of the pain that you feel. God is good. And you I don't care, you say it through gritted teeth, God is good and God is sovereign. Because He is. And that's what we stand on. That's what we stand on. In this, the outcome was positive. The son is healed. We see that this there's faith evident in this man. We see that it persists. We see that He responds in faith, and the outcome is positive, but it's not always, and that's okay. Let me pray. Father, yeah. passages like this are, are difficult because Sometimes life doesn't go this way, but you're not small enough that we can't come to you with our struggles and our doubts and our fears and all of this. You are majestic in all things. Almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of your own most righteous will. Father, I pray that we would leave today. I pray that your Spirit will have done a work in us, that we will leave today with an enlarged view of who you are. And that you can move and you will move and you do move when you desire to do so. And when we don't perceive that you're doing it, you're doing it. Thank you for the grace that you show us. For our lack of understanding. We love you. We love Jesus. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. As I said, one of those promises that Jesus gives us is that it is finished that the work is done, that salvation has been accomplished for all those who would believe. And so if that's you this morning, I encourage you to take communion. I encourage you to repent of sin, turn from sin, and then come in faith, demonstrating faith. What is it? Taking Jesus at His word. Taking Jesus that that He has finished the work that He set out to do. look at your sin. i said it in the first service. At this time in the service, my heart can do weird things. There's a conflict of looking at my sin and and being disgusted with my own sin and and thinking about the ugliness of my own sin. But then there's there's Jesus. And rather than focusing on that, let's focus on Him and and how good He is to us and how gracious He's been to us through His body broken and his blood shed so let's take communion if you're a follower of Jesus if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning I lovingly ask that you don't take communion with us you would be saying something in taking communion that you don't believe and that just wouldn't make sense and it wouldn't be good for you so I lovingly ask that you don't do that but if you're a follower of Christ let's take communion let's worship King Jesus